I anticipate that we would be returning here quite so quickly. Uh, but as it is, we've got the opportunity um, to continue our studies in this book together. And uh, I trust we'll all find something helpful as we spend time looking at, at it this morning. Well, with the congregation at LCPC changing so regularly, uh, and indeed some visitors with us uh, this morning, there'll be some who weren't with us a year ago when we first started considering this book together. So it's probably worth taking a minute just to remind ourselves what is the background to the book, what is, what is the overarching theme. For primarily this is a book whose theme is that God keeps and fulfills his promises. You may remember that back in Genesis chapter 15, God had made a covenant with Abraham. At that time, God foretold that Abraham's descendants would become captives in Egypt. But along with this somber news of what would befall the nation of Israel, there was also a wonderful promise of what would follow, because God promised that after 400 years, he would judge his people's captors, the Egyptians, and they, then they would be brought out of Egypt with great riches. But not only that, at the same time, God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land, which at that time, Abraham was just passing through as a nomad. God was going to give Abraham's descendants that land that they could call home. And in the course of our studies in this book over the last year, we've seen how God kept this promise to Abraham. Having brought them out of Egypt, he then brought them miraculously across the River Jordan. He miraculously brought about the conquest of Jericho. And then God led them through a successful conquest of the city of Ai after uh, an aberration, a time when they had wobbled, as it were, and fallen into sin. And all of this came to a peak, it came to an apogee a few weeks ago when we saw the children of Israel gathered together before the Ark of the Covenant there at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Curse and the Mount of Blessing. The whole congregation of Israel were gathered there. And the events that took place there in front of those two mountains were conducted in accordance with the instructions that God had given Moses years earlier. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, you remember, remember we had been they had been told what to do when they came to that place. And in obedience to that, they had carried out those instructions. The very fact that they were there reading the law in accordance with the instruction that they'd been given all those years earlier, was a sure sign that God could be trusted. God had fulfilled the promise that he had made to Abraham 
more than 400 years earlier, God had been true to his word. Now, it's as true for us as Christians today as it was for Joshua then that spiritual high points can often be followed by times of spiritual difficulty. No sooner was Israel basking in the glorious knowledge of God's faithfulness than opposing forces began to gather against them. And that's what we read about here at the beginning of chapter 9. For in the first two verses of our passage this morning, we see, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, in the lowland, along the coast, etc., etc., as soon as they heard of this, heard of what? As soon as they'd heard of how God had fulfilled his promises to Israel. Then these tribes, the, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, what did they do? They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. You see, these disparate tribes were living in the land of Canaan, and they became united in their opposition to Israel. They joined together with a common purpose which was to frustrate God's purpose to give the land to Israel as an inheritance, to stop the promise that God had made all those years earlier to Abraham. So then, a spiritual high is immediately followed by opposition, and that experience is something which is all too familiar to us as Christians, isn't it? So hopefully we can empathize with the children of Israel this morning and learn something from their experience as we look at this passage. And we look at it under three headings, an act of deceit, an act of foolishness, and then an act of mercy. An act of deceit, an act of foolishness, and then an act of mercy. An act of deceit then. Look at verses 3 through to verse 6. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals for their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now to understand what's going on here, you need to understand something about the rules of engagement that governed Israel's military campaigns. We read about it back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where Moses set out various principles for warfare. And in verse 10 of that chapter, we read that generally Israel was able to offer peace terms to the cities that were far from them. They could go and make treaties with them, and they could live at peace with them. 
But a few verses further on in Deuteronomy 20, in verses 16 to 18, we read this. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. You see, while Israel could make peace with the cities far from them, they were not meant to make peace with the tribes who were living in Canaan. They were to destroy them. Now, this may make uncomfortable reading, but we need to appreciate that this command was driven by the love of God. It was driven by his desire to protect his chosen people. And it wasn't an idle concern on the part of the Lord either, was it? Bitter experience had shown how easily the Israelites were influenced by their neighbors. In Numbers 25, we read that no sooner had the Israelites stopped on the other side of the Jordan than they had begun to be dismayed by the women of Moab. Within two short verses there, we find that mere neighbors had become intimate relatives. Mere neighbors had become fellow worshippers of a false god. And this wasn't just a problem for the Israelites either, is it? The church all the way up to today is littered with the wreckage of lives which have been led away from the Lord simply through intimate friendship with unbelievers. Those who professed faith in Christ, earnestly living out their faith, diligently attending church services, attending midweek prayer meeting, have formed close relationships with those who have no personal experience or love of God. And as the human bond grows closer, the relationship with Christ grows colder. It's as true today as it was for Israel then. So you see, as Israel was to settle in the land of their inheritance, the Lord declared that he was jealous for his people. He would do what was necessary to protect them from being led astray. So precious were his people that he would not permit them to live alongside the Canaanite neighbors or to make peace with them. God knew all too well what the outcome would be. The Canaanites would teach them about their gods and they would sin against the Lord. So you see, God is a jealous God in the best possible sense. He's protective of his people and he wouldn't expose them to such a danger. Now, it seems that the Gibeonites were aware of this. Their whole ruse was to convince Joshua that they were not near neighbors. Their whole scheme was to make it appear 
that they had come from a far land. Their scheme was to convince Joshua to make a treaty with them rather than put them to the sword. Operation Mincemeat was an act of deception by the British in World War II. The body of a dead tramp was dressed up in the uniform of a Royal Marine officer. And then it was uh, released in the sea at a position where it would wash up on the shore of Spain. He was known as the man who he was. But his body carried papers which were designed to fool the Germans about where in Italy the Allies intended to invade. And the man who never was had things in his pockets to support the idea that he was indeed an officer in the Royal Marines. Apart from his clothes, he had a complete false identity. And a whole backstory supported with a picture of a fictitious fiancé, tickets to the theatre in London, a show that he'd just visited, and letters from his family. (coughs) Well, the Gibeonites did a very similar thing, didn't they? They'd chosen their oldest and most worn-out clothes. They'd rummaged through the pantry, gone into the bread bin to find the mouldiest and driest crusts. They created a whole backstory to support the idea that they had come from a faraway land. Look what's recorded in verse 9. Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of Jordan. It's clever, isn't it? He don't, they don't mention the recent victor, victories in Jericho or Ai. That would have given the game away. The, they only recount old news, news that would have taken ages to reach them in that faraway country. Friends, doesn't this serve as a warning if we are Christians today? The Bible tells us that Satan prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet the devil doesn't always attack the church or Christians in a full full frontal assault through opposition or persecution. Satan is also described as an angel of light. He's appearing as an angel of light. He's a subtle serpent. He works secretly and spoils from within. In stirring up the other tribes of Canaan to fight against Joshua, Satan was relying on the use of arms, of force. But in moving the Gibeonites to lie and deceive, we see Satan's craftiness at work. For John tells us that Satan is the father of lies. If there is a lesson for us today, maybe it's that we should be aware of those things which sound reasonable, seem right, 
but can deceive us and trip us up in our spiritual life. What about that course or that career move which seems to make so much sense but it means moving somewhere where we will struggle to find a church to feed us and challenge us and nurture us in our faith. What about that relationship where he or she seems sympathetic to our faith but when the chips are down You can't pray with them. And you can't share your deepest personal spiritual experiences because it's alien to them. What about that skill that you have, that interest, like playing sport? You may tell yourself that you will do it for God's glory, the one who gave you that skill. But if it means playing on Sunday... Would you rather be doing that? Should you be doing that? Rather than worshipping God with others in church. Friends, these are just some of the struggles that we may face. But friends, be careful. Satan is out there to draw you away from God. And he will just as soon use the deceit of the Gibeonites rather than outright attack. If Ultimately, it will undermine your devotion to God. So that then is the act of deceit. We need to move on, look at the the act of foolishness, which we see recorded in verses 14 to 16. Look what we read there. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And the end of three days after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard they were their neighbors and they had lived among them. See, the Gibeonites were not the only people to have committed sin that day. The Gibeonites might have been guilty of deceit, but the Israelites were guilty of self-reliance. And it isn't as if Joshua and the Israelites were being completely naive, were they? Um, They were on their guard. They were beginning to ask the right questions. You see that in verses 7 and 8. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? The problem was that whilst they had their suspicions, the leaders of Israel did not seek God's will concerning the matter. Joshua did not take it to the Lord. They didn't ask what God's will was in this situation. And and Israel had a very well-established means to receive direction from the Lord. On occasions, we find God speaking directly. And that was true right in the very first chapter 
of this book of Joshua. For there we read that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And again in chapter 3, the Lord speaks to Joshua. And again in chapter 4. And in chapter 5. And again in chapter 6. And in chapter 7 again. And then in chapter 8, we find God speaking to Joshua time and time again. And this wasn't all, for although we don't know the details of how it worked, we're told in the Bible that at this time the Lord spoke through the Urim and Thummim. These stones were held by the high priest and used to discern the will of God concerning matters that were brought to him for choice to direction. And indeed, on the very occasion that Joshua's made and appointed Moses' successor, Joshua had been instructed to go to the high priest and obtain directions through the Urim and Thummim. So you see, the problem was not that Joshua had no direction from God as to whether the Gibeonites were telling the truth or not. The problem was... He didn't ask. The sad truth is that Joshua was disobedient. For he did not look to God for direction as to what he should do. What are we told in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Well-known verses, aren't they? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. But this isn't what Joshua did, was it? We read that under the questioning from Joshua, the Gibeonites exhorted Joshua to look at the evidence in front of his eyes. Look, they said. And Joshua did, but not to the Lord, for in verse 14 we're told that he, they looked at the provisions that the Gibeonites had, this dry, crusty, moldy bread. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua looked at the things before his eyes. He looked to it in his own understanding. But he did not look for the God's will in it. Did you notice where this happens? We're told it happened in Gilgal. If you've been with us in these sermons over the past year, maybe you remember where that is. It's just after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan. It's where they spent their first night in the promised land. It was the place where they camped after being brought across the river by the miraculous intervention of God. Gilgal was the place where there were 12 stones erected as a memorial to all that God had done. Stones which had been taken out of the river to testify to future generations that they should fear the Lord forever. This was Gilgal the place where the Israelites had renewed their covenant with 
God after the disobedience and the faithlessness of their forefathers when they had died in the desert. This was Gilgal, the place where the Israelites had celebrated the Passover for the first time in that land that God had promised them. This was Gilgal, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was Gilgal, the place where the high priest was. This was Gilgal, the place where the man was that Joshua could have asked to know what the will of the Lord was. But he didn't, did he? Rather than trusting in the Lord with all his heart, Joshua, we're told, leaned on his own understanding. Gilgal was a place that screamed out to the Israelites how God could be trusted, how God loved them and provided for them. But Joshua's deaf to the voices in that place. Rather than relying upon God, he relied upon his own senses. And so what happened? It was a mess, wasn't it? Joshua made a covenant with the very people that he should have kept Israel separate from. He and the leaders of Israel were bound by an oath sworn in the name of the Lord. That was an oath that could not be undone. Joshua now had followers of a false god living in their midst. And he was bound by a treaty to live at peace and in peace with them. So you see, not only was this an act of direct disobedience to God, it exposed the whole of Israel to the risk of being drawn away after those false gods as they lived alongside their neighbours. Friends, it's easy, isn't it, to point a finger to point a finger to Joshua as we read this account. But I tell my children that when they point the finger, they need to be careful because there are four fingers pointing back at them. And so we need to be careful when we read of Joshua's failing. It's not recorded here in the Bible for us to scoff over. It's there as a warning for us to learn from. And friends, isn't this a salutary truth that if we fall into sin, the results can be a mess? With the best will in the world, there are consequences to sin which do not disappear when and if we realize what we have done. This might be committed in the moment, but the consequences can last for years. You can think of lots of examples, can't you? A word spoken in anger that hurts a friendship so that it's never quite the same again. A dishonest act that when it's discovered destroys trust as well as reputation. A moment of unrestrained passion which will forever cast a shadow over future relationship. A foolish decision, which you cannot reverse. 
Friends, are there not some lessons for us to learn from Joshua's experience? Should we not all take this passage as a salutary warning, always to seek the Lord's will in all matters of life and conduct? Unlike Joshua then, take it to the Lord in prayer. Seek the counsel of the Lord. God does not answer us today through Urim and Thummim. But he answers us through his word, the Bible, and through his acts of providence and care. Be assured that God promises to answer those who diligently seek him. Make sure then that you trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Well, that's the act of deceit and then an act of foolishness. So we come to our last point, which is an act of mercy. And we read about this in verses 22 and 23. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. I wonder if you feel that this is a just result. Was it right that Israel should be bound by an oath that had been made as a result of deception? Perhaps you might be tempted to say that as, uh, as Joshua had not sought the counsel of the Lord, uh, perhaps the agreement wasn't God's will. Perhaps after all, the, the agreement could be broken. Could it be revoked? Doesn't it feel as if the Gibeonites somehow or other have managed to get one over Joshua? Haven't they secured their lives by pulling the wool? over God's eyes. These are understandable reactions. But the the Bible makes it clear that covenants and oaths have a very special place in God's economy. God takes oaths and vows seriously, even if we were wrong to have made them in the first place. See, God honours those who honour their vows. In Psalm 15, the psalmist asks a question. He asks, who can live on God's holy hill? Who can live in God's tabernacle? And when you get to verse 4, the answer the psalmist gives is, he who keeps the oath he has sworn however high the price. You see, Joshua had to keep the commandment, the covenant that he'd made, even though it had consequences. Israel was going to have to share their promised inheritance with the Gibeonites. It may not have been as God had initially instructed but this was necessary because God, uh, because Joshua had entered into a solemn covenant in the name of the Lord. And so the arrangement was made. 
that the Gibeonites would live. But Joshua describes them as being cursed because they would be bound to a life of servitude, cutting wood and carrying water in the temple. The covenant was kept, you see, even though it came at a price. A price for both Israel and the Gibeonites. But this also reminds us of another covenant that was made. This one between God the Father and God the Son. For the Father promised to give a people to the Son for his own possession. And the Son promised to come and die to redeem those people from their sin. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ swore covenant to secure our salvation, even though it came at a price. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 15. Who can live on God's holy hill? The one who keeps the oath he has sworn, however high the price. And so the Lord Jesus Christ entered into a bond to secure our salvation, even though it meant suffering and death for him. He swore to complete the task, to lose not one that God had given to him, the Father had given to him, even though it meant great pain. And now the Lord Jesus Christ has been honoured by the Father because he's kept the oath that he had sworn, even though it was at such a price. And as the, the Gibeonites respond, reply to the question which Joshua asks in verse 22, why did you deceive us, says Joshua? The Gibeonites reply, and we see that the Gibeonites haven't pulled the wool over God's eyes at all. Rather, we see that the Gibeonites succeed in their roots, seeded in their roots, not because of their deceit, not because of their cleverness, but because God intended to use it to show an act of mercy towards them. If you look at verse 24, we find words reminiscent of Rahab back in chapter 3. What do they say? Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. You see, like Rahab, these Gibeonites realized that they were facing judgment from God. For when God met with Abraham back in Genesis 15, he said that the Israelites would not return to the promised land 
until 400 years had elapsed. And the reason God gave for that delay was that the iniquity or sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. But now it was complete. And the Gibeonites realized that God's just wrath was quite rightly being poured out on them. Just as it will be poured out as a response to the sin of us all. Like Rahab, you see, these Gibeonites realized that they were sinners, that they had, that they had set their lives against God, and that unless they turned to God, they faced a hopeless future. What we see here is just the germ of faith. But faith even as small as a mustard seed. They don't know how they can be saved, but they cast themselves on the mercy of God. What do they say in verse 25? Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Now, at no point does the Bible condone their deceit. Quite the opposite. But there's a wonderful irony here, isn't there, in the ruse that the Gibeonites have employed. See, God wasn't deceived at all, was he? The Gibeonites appeared as if they had nothing. They appeared impoverished and dressed in rags. And that's exactly what they were. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, the prophet declares, We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Unknowingly, you see, they were acting out a spiritual truth that before God they really were impoverished. Before God, they really did have nothing to commend them. Even their best was to be dismissed as cracked, broken, worn out, worthless before a great and mighty God. But having cast themselves upon God's mercy, we see how wonderfully God answers them. For they were to serve in the temple. That which Joshua described as a curse was in reality a great blessing. What was it we sang only a few minutes ago in Psalm 84? Verse 10, one day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Let me stay in God's temple. Let me be a doorman there. Well, the Gibeonites didn't even have to settle for being a doorman, did they? They got up close to the action in the temple. They brought wood for the sacrifices. They bought water for the priests. And each day they would have seen enacted out in the temple the rituals which pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Each sacrifice each day was an illustration of how they could be spared from the wrath of God. Each day they saw a shadow of the sacrifice which the Lord Jesus Christ would make when he died on the cross in order to atone for their deception. Each day they saw a pattern that pointed to the Lord Jesus 
the one who would also keep his oath, an oath to save the Gibeonites from their sin, no matter what the price the Lord Jesus Christ would have to pay. So you see, the germ of faith which they demonstrated when they cast themselves on God's mercy, it grew. For we have seen that having been spared and having been brought in to serve in the temple, the Gibeonites did indeed become faithful followers of the Lord. Centuries later, Nehemiah was seeking to build the wall, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And if we read the book of Nehemiah, there we read that among those engaged in the work were sons of Gibeon. The Gibeonites could not deceive God to gain his favor. They couldn't offer anything to commend themselves before him. All they could do was cast themselves upon his mercy. But in doing so, they were wonderfully saved. They were brought to see the provision that God had made to enable their sin to be forgiven. And they were given a place alongside their Hebrew brothers in the community of God's people. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you're like the Gibeonites. Perhaps you've begun to realize that like the Gibeonites, God is someone you have to deal with. Perhaps you're beginning to realize that like the Gibeonites, you're dressed in rags as you come before God. Well, take heart and turn to God knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ kept his oath and through his death on the cross, he's done all that is required to make each one of us one of God's people, no matter what the price he had to pay. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed you are a God who keeps his promises. Though we can only begin to contemplate it, we give you thanks, Lord God, that even from before the beginning of time, a covenant was made between the Father and the Son. We thank you, Lord God, that the Lord Jesus Christ promised, made an oath, bound himself to redeem us as a people. And we give you thanks, Lord God, that that, that oath was fulfilled on Calvary. We give you thanks, Lord God, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not avert himself from that task, but that he was faithful 
and kept his promise. And we give you thanks and praise, Lord God, that as we gather this morning, we may do so because of the faithfulness of our Saviour. Father, we pray that uh, for each one of us we would be able to reflect upon all that's been done for us. Not because we deserve it, not because we have deceived or, uh, as it were, pulled, uh, uh, placed ourselves in a position of favour before you. But rather, Lord, because of your great mercy that you have called us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel brings no praise or glory upon ourselves, but that the gospel brings glory and praise solely to our wonderful Saviour, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our Heavenly Father, this morning as we come before you, we offer praise to you for that great work of redemption for the glorious gospel of our Saviour and for your mercy and your goodness and your patience and your graciousness toward us, your forbearance. We bless you, Lord God, for all this and every expression of your kindness and your goodness to us, which we do not deserve. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Though we have read of your dealings with your people of old, you, O Lord, are the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, our Heavenly Father, we bless you that there are lessons here to be learned for us as we seek to walk and live in communion with you and as members of your covenant community. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness toward us. And we pray, Lord, that you indeed might receive all our thanks and our praise for that. Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we have gathered in this place, we remember uh, the work and witness of your church around the world. We are conscious, Lord, that there are so many places where our brothers and sisters are not able to meet with the, the freedoms that we enjoy. We're conscious, Lord, that there are some who meet in, in fear, and facing opposition. As we thought about this morning, there are some who face the wiles of the devil through um, pray uh, too that your gospel would advance this day. We pray, Lord, for uh, churches up and down this land and indeed throughout the world where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is preached. We pray, Lord, that uh, many might hear the good news of the Saviour and turn to him and live. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tokens of your kindness that we have experienced in this place, even in recent uh, months. Continue with us, we pray, not because we deserve it, but in and through the name of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.